Hello, podcast listeners. I am currently switching a lot of my podcast from my Bearded Disciple podcast to here on Ratio Christie CSU. Uh, this is one of those podcasts. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Bearded Disciple podcast. This week I'm sharing with you guys a talk that I gave last week at Ratio Christi. We've been doing a series basically going through the very basics of apologetics, how we know truth exists, how we know God exists, and now we're getting into do we know if miracles exist? Matt gave a talk about that last week and this week I went into do we know if prophecies happened? And so we dove into some scriptures, specifically in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and I analyzed whether or not we can see if those prophecies came together. Hope you enjoy it. Last week we talked about miracles, how we know whether miracles happen or not. This week we're getting kind of taken that to the next step. If miracles can happen, can prophecy happen, looking at essentially it another type or a specific type of last one of the things to kind of keep in mind again what we've done so far with what we've studied is we're kind of making this outline of apologetics we're looking at does truth exist if truth exists does god exist and then if god exists miracles are by necessity possible but they don't have to happen so We kind of talked about last week the ways that we know that miracles are possible and they could happen as a result of God existing. And now we're going to start getting into, do we know if miracles have occurred or not? So the specific, obviously, miracle we're kind of getting into today is looking at prophecy. So I'm getting a lot of this information from this uh, new apologist that I've kind of discovered. His name's Mike Winger. Um, He's actually a pastor at a church, and he just has some really incredible stuff on YouTube. He's also got a podcast called Bible Thinker. So I'd really encourage you guys to check him out, Um, especially when it comes to prophecies. He's got a ton of information. So a lot of what I'm giving today is honestly pretty much a summed up version of two of his talks into one. So he gives about one hour on each of these. And I'm just going to try to summarize that all into one piece. So when we're doing apologetics, we try to go through these different points, knowing truth exists, God exists. If God exists, Jesus is God. And then the Bible is the word of God is usually how we go about it. We're taking a little bit of a different route this time. So we're establishing that truth exists, God exists. Now we're actually going to kind of get into reasons why we can trust the Bible as the word of God, and then using that in some ways to kind of show that Jesus is God. So we're kind of teaming up those last two points, and I'm kind of almost looking at this, and the reason I have a picture of a dam on there is what we're kind of doing is when we think of skeptics, in a lot of ways they have this wall up of their kind of different objections to Christianity and what they believe and why they think Christianity is false. And we're, in a sense, laying up more and more evidences that are just kind of piling up like water behind a dam that I think eventually is either going to create cracks in their thinking and cracks in the wall that they've kind of put up against Christianity, or eventually it's just going to kind of break the dam. And so this is kind of the approach I feel like that's more of what we're taking now because we're not going as much of a step-by-step. We've gotten truth. We've gotten God. And now we're going to look at all of the ways that we know that Jesus is God and the Bible is the word of God. And those all build off of each other in a lot of ways. The best way I thought 
that we could look at this. I'm actually really excited about this talk because I think this is going to have a lot of information that uh, maybe has been confusing in the past when you guys have maybe read through some of these in the scriptures or um, is just going to be something completely new to you. So with that, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Daniel. So we're going to look at two chapters of Daniel, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And these are two of what are considered the most prophetic passages in all of the Bible. If you guys have your Bible or if you have um, Bible on your phone, I would really encourage you to open your Bible to Daniel 7. And we're just going to read these different stories together to kind of understand the context of what's going on. And then you'll see how these are understood and interpreted. So with this in mind, we're actually going to look at just the first three beasts that are mentioned in Daniel 7. We're not actually going to look at all four because the fourth one ends up talking more about end times and it's prophesying more about the Antichrist and who's going to come after Jesus to kind of um, be someone fighting against Christ and against the kingdom that Christ has established. When we're looking at Daniel 7, um, what we end up seeing is Daniel 7 verses 1 through 6 is where it's first brought up. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. Visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up a great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. There before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on, a, on a, one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule." So <clears throat> these are the beasts that we're going to kind of look at, and these are kind of a visualization of each of those beasts that we're kind of getting in depth into. Then we see in the next passage in Daniel, looking at verses 7 in chapter 7 again, looking at now verses 15 through 18, <clears throat> he actually gives the meaning of all this. So, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So, what we know now is these three beasts that it's talking about are three kings. So <clears throat> now, as we look at who are the kings that we either see that Daniel was around during or who came about after, G after Daniel. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. So Nebuchadnezzar is the first king that Daniel is actually kind of reigning with, or not reigning with, but he is living under. So Israel is captured. The way that um, Babylon, when they take over a kingdom, they would actually take the people and they'd bring them to Babylon or other places in their kingdom to kind of displace them a bit. So they wouldn't have as much loyalties working together. 
they would start to have more loyalties to their own government. And so Daniel's taken as one of those people and as someone who's well-trained, very knowledgeable. They take him specifically to be one of the wise men in that kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is the first king that he's under in that. So Nebuchadnezzar, even under the views of the Babylonian kingdom, is considered a lion. So this illustration here is actually from one of the walls of Babylon at the time, and it's illustrating Nebuchadnezzar. So he's referred to as a lion by a lot of different sources outside of scripture itself. And that view of a lion is in a lot of ways just portraying the fact that he's a ruler and he is considered by many to be the first ruler who is a world power. So no one before him is considered a king of all of the world. He's the first king to really conquer that much land that he's considered to be in charge of the entire world. And so in that sense, he's like a lion that he can lie anywhere he wants in his kingdom and not worry about anyone coming after him. He's able to do what he wants. So we see these illustrations of a lion all over the palace walls, all over Babylon. We see it on palace walls. We see it going around the city. We see it on walls going into the temple. These sort of illustrations illustrating Nebuchadnezzar as being a lion. <clears throat> He's considered the first world ruler. And then we see, so the passage talks about his wings were taken off. And the wings kind of represent that he's fast. He's considered fast in the sense that he is the first world ruler. He's doing it in a faster speed than anybody else had conquered lands before him. And so that's what the wings are representing in that, is it's his speed to do that sort of thing. But we see when we look at Daniel, Daniel talks about Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar goes through this time of being humbled. He's so full of himself that eventually God basically strikes him down and puts him through this um, almost like he, he goes insane for a time. He acts like a wild beast himself. And then after a time, it clicks, and he realizes, I've been trying to give all this glory to myself. I've been acknowledging myself. And he's humbled by that experience. And that's him giving, beginning to stand up like a man, and he's giving the heart like a human. And so that's that humbling that's going on. So obviously with this, the one thing that we can say is, this doesn't end up seeming to be much of a prophecy in the sense that Daniel's right in and he's under Nebuchadnezzar. He's seen all of these things happening. So obviously this isn't necessarily a prophecy at this point, but it gives us an understanding of, okay, what are these prophecies going to look like? How, how can we expect these to kind of be explained? How can we expect these to kind of look as we go forward? So the next beast ends up being this bear. And this is the Medo-Persian Empire. And they take over after Babylon. They conquer Babylon. And they reign from 539 to 331, around that time. And what's interesting is Cyrus the Great is the first of the Persians to kind of really take reign and take power over Babylon. But it talks about, in this passage in Daniel, that he's raised up on one side. And so you would almost think that there's kind of a weird balance of power within the empire itself in that. And so what's interesting when we look at history is the Medo-Persian Empire is the Persians are under the Medes at first. So it's all one empire, but you have the Persians and then the Medes. But as time goes on, that power kind of switches. 
And now the Persians are over the Medes. And so this is that change, that shift in power, and that's the reason that he's kind of hunched over onto one side, is there's this imbalance or change in power that's happening. So the way they also kind of take over and take over lands is in many ways kind of there. He's lumbering around kind of almost clumsily in a sense. So it's not quite as well organized as, say, before them with the Babylonians, and especially what's going to happen with the Greeks afterwards. The Greeks are much, well organized, much better organized in that. So the three ribs then also represent, they conquer three different lands, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. All of these are the three kingdoms that they end up conquering. So that, again, lines up with what we see in scripture. And then when we move forward, if my slides will move forward. Um, honestly, I'd need to check into that. Um, there's so much that I was trying to research and get down for. Is it Turkey? That would make sense. When I know I've seen a map of what they've kind of conquered, and that would make sense around that area. It would make sense. Okay, so then after that comes Greece. And Greece is this four-headed leopard with four wings. And so we're expecting, once again, speed, because now not just two wings, but four wings. He's coming in even faster. And the leopard, in that sense, is representing Alexander the Great and the speed that he comes in. And we'll explain this even a little bit more when we look at Daniel 8, because Daniel 8 ends up talking about a lot of this even more in depth. So Daniel 8, or so Daniel 7 talks about Alexander the Great, we see with that. And he comes in and he conquers all of Babylon. And he does it extremely quick. So the four wings are talking about speed once again. So as he comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered as Babylon, when he conquered Tyre, one of the cities, it took him three years to take the city. When Alexander the Great comes and takes over Tyre, it took him seven months to conquer Tyre. So this gives you an idea of how much quicker he is doing it. This is exactly how you would expect as you're reading the passage from Daniel and predicting what this is trying to say. This is exactly what we would expect to happen, as he's doing it way faster. His enemies, in fact, are so like impressed with how quickly he does things that it's in a lot of ways He's doing an ancient blitzkrieg. So if you're a World War II buff at all, you know that World War II, one of the reasons the Germans were so successful early on is they geared up and they just plowed through everybody before they even got ready for them to attack. And that's one of the reasons that they conquered so much so quickly. So a lot of the times as Alexander the Great is going along, he conquers one city, and as the next city realizes we gotta get ready, he's already there. And so it's too late to get ready. And, they, and so instead of even resisting, they just surrender because they know we're done. We don't stand a chance. And so some of these cities, he doesn't even really have to do much. They just surrender. And so he gets through it way faster than any of them in that sense. So then we also see when Alexander the Great dies, how, does anybody know what, what he said? when they ask who is he leaving his kingdom to? Yeah. He says, I leave like, my kingdom to the strong. So you can imagine that leaves this kind of power vacuum when he dies. And he dies s suddenly, 
where no one really knows who's going to take over. He hasn't even declared his own son to necessarily take over in this. And so with that, what ends up happening is he has four generals. And these four generals end up taking that power. So you have four heads on that leopard, and those end up being those four kings that end up splitting up the empire that Alexander the Great has put together. So he conquers all of this area. He's starting to kind of get it all solidified, and then he's planning on taking over more. He gets sick and dies. Then the generals take over and split the kingdom. So that's what ends up happening. So all of this lines up perfectly with what we see in this illustration. And then it gets even more in-depth, though, when we look at Daniel 8. So Daniel 8, unfortunately, like with this super dark screen, you guys probably can't see it as well. Daniel 8 gives another prediction, and now it outlines this with a goat and a ram. And so we'll look at Daniel 8. In the third year of King Belteshazzar, I, Daniel, had a vision after one that had already appeared to me. In, the vision, my, in my vision, I saw myself in a citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was behind, beside Ilal Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long, but one of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him. No one could rescue, be rescued from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west. Crossing the whole earth without touching the ground, he came toward the two-horned ram, and I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became, became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of heaven, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and trampled them. It set itself up to be a great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. The place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So, does that make sense? You guys got it? Can we just move on? Call it a night? Okay, so this is super confusing, right? So, some of this we could probably understand, like, it's hinting at the same sort of thing going on a little bit. So, as this kind of goes on, we see again Daniel 8. Now this is again talking about Babylon or excuse me, the Medo-Persian Empire. So three, 539 to 330 BC. And the Medes start as a power again, and then eventually Persia takes over. So they're all like, it is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's all one empire, but one of them starts to kind of take more of the power. And that's why we see that one of these ram's horns 
is higher than the other one, and it grew up after the other one, just as you expect. So the Persians start low, they're not in power, they grow, and they become bigger. When they even take over, they're stronger than the Mede Empire was before it. So that's exactly what we're expecting. And Persia is higher and above because it grows in prestige and it grows in power above what Medea had ever been. When we look at Daniel 8, this is where it starts to get really crazy. So first of all, the one horn, as you would expect, is Alexander the Great. They come in fast. So it says that he came in as this goat comes in. He doesn't even touch the ground. It's coming with speed once again. So as he comes in with speed, Alexander the Great comes in from the west. It says that he comes from the west in this prophecy. And all of this is stuff that is also explained, and I'll, I should probably even stop really quick and just explain, show, show the passage that he's explaining this. So Daniel's confused by the dream himself. And so Gabriel comes along and he explains some of the dream of what's going to happen. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the wrath. <clears throat> the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, but will not have the same power. In the later part of their reign, when the rebels had become completely wicked, a stern-faced king... A master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but will not, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in everything that he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, by, but not by human power. So then that other horn that comes out of one of the horns, so you have the first horn that comes from the goat, that's Alexander the Great. Then that horn's broken off, and you have the four horns that come out that is just like we talked about, that now is those four generals that take over the kingdom. And out of one of those four horns, another horn comes, and this is that king that it really expounds on to say he's going to be conceited, he's going to be full of himself, he's going to do it by the sly, he's going to be very much like a politician in the way he comes to power, he's not going to do it by might, and then he's going to die, but he's not going to die by some human killing him, he's not going to die by assassination or anything like that. So this is what we're, that's exactly the outline we're expecting. So Alexander the Great comes along again. He comes in like Blitzkrieg. It says to fly. So again, Tyre in seven, seven months. Took Nebuchadnezzar three years to do that. So while Nebuchadnezzar conquers Tyre in, th in three years, Alexander the Great actually has conquered all of Persia in that time. So in the amount of time that he took just to do one city, Alexander the Great has conquered the entire, entire kingdom of Persia, which is the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. So he's coming in with great speed again, once again, and he dies suddenly. So this is, again, the horn is broken off. There's not another animal that comes in and takes it off. The horn just breaks off. It falls off. 
And so he dies suddenly, and that's left with this power void. And what's interesting is when we look at Greece, and we see what Greece kind of uses as their symbol, the actual son of the king was called the son of the goat. So they're using even the terms that the Bible is using to identify themselves. So he's called the son of the goat. When you look at the Greek coins, and this is an example of one of those Greek coins, on their coins, they have goats. So even their own symbology is using exactly how the scripture is talking about them. If this was just them choosing some random animal, you wouldn't expect this to come true. That all of a sudden they just happen to pick the right animal. And then the kingdom's divided into four hearts. So the horn breaks off, and now four horns come out of it. So the kingdom breaks into those four parts. And this is what we see. This is all of the land, all of that colored area, except for this yellow, is all the land that Alexander the Great conquers. And then it's divided up into these kingdoms. So the green is what's called the Seleucid Kingdom. The Ptolemaic Kingdom is over here in Egypt. And then up here we have, uh, they didn't actually label it for some reason. Um, there's another kingdom here. And then the Antiguid Kingdom is up in Greece. So those are the divisions that these four kings split everything up into. Then the dream goes on and explains that out of one of these horns, and this is kind of giving the illustration a little bit, so you see the goat, you see its broken horns, you see the four horns, and then out of one of those horns is coming this one. And out of that one horn, as it talks about in scripture, it talks about this one horn being starting off small. It doesn't have power. It's not mighty. It's not really important but it grows, and it grows so much that eventually it reaches the stars of heaven. And so it keeps on growing and growing. And so you would expect that this horn ends up taking over one of these empires and grows more and more into power. And so enter Antiochus. So Antiochus ends up being one of the kings of the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucid Empire oh, went too far. Seleucid Empire is this one in green. So he takes over that after a time. And so when we look then in Daniel, it's fascinating. He comes to power in a sinister way. He basically comes to power by becoming, sending off the person that was supposed to be the ruler to Rome, and that person kind of gets captured by Rome. And then he, become, he declares himself co-regent with the other person that's supposed to be in charge next, but this person's a baby at the time. So he becomes co-regent with him in order to gain that power, and then eventually, of course, he kills that baby. So he's coming to power in this sinister way, just as we're expecting in the scriptures where it's talking about, where it says, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause devastation and will succeed in everything that he does. So the way that he's coming to power as well isn't the traditional way of the kings up to this point. He's coming in a very, very different way coming to power. Um, <clears throat> let me just, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. Hold on a second. Okay. 
So then you can look at, and you guys, can you guys read these notes by this at all? So it's, again, you look at all the ways that he comes into power out of one of them. So he rules the Seleucid Empire, one of those four. So he comes off of that fourth Seleucid Empire horn, and he comes to power that way. In the later part of their kingdom, so while all of Greece is dying in power, that's when he starts to come into power himself among those kingdoms. And then he, he conquers towards the south, so he goes further south. He ends up taking out one of the kingdoms that's more in the southern part and of those four. So he takes over Egypt. So he's going to the south. He goes further east, so the direction that he already owns land, he goes further east. And he takes the Holy Land as well. But he doesn't go west. He doesn't go towards Rome at all, which is what you would expect. He doesn't move that direction. And then we'd also see that other things that come about, um, and I'll go more into depth than these in a sec right now. Um, so comes to power in a sinister way. He grows, brings his power to the east, the south, and towards Jerusalem. And he tries to end Judaism. So in a lot of ways, he ends up being the BC Hitler. So at one point, he kills over 40,000 Jews over a two-day period. He um, also <clears throat> desecrates the temple. He forces pig sacrifices on the altars of the Jewish temple. And in a essence, to the Jewish view, he's destroyed the temple by doing this. Because now it is no longer holy, because he's killed an impure animal on a clean altar. So, and then he sells the position of the high priest twice. So it's very key to Jewish view that only people who are of Levite ancestry, who are qualified under certain qualifications, can be a high priest. But he looks and finds the person that he thinks is best going to help support him and basically sells that position to that person. <clears throat> and then he also dies of sickness. So before I get into that, some of the other things that he does, he forces the Jews to eat pork. So again, this is an impure animal. This is an animal that they're not supposed to eat. They're not even supposed to touch. And he forces the Jewish people to eat those animals. He declares himself, in many ways, God. He, he considers himself to be Zeus. And with that, he starts to put altars to Zeus all throughout Jerusalem, even in the temple itself. And so he's elevating himself by doing those things. And this is, again, what we're seeing in the scriptures in Daniel 8, when it's saying that he will cause astounding devastation. He will he, he will cause deceit to prosper and will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and will take a stand against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? God is the prince of princes. So when he is declaring himself God, he's declaring, declaring war against God. He's going against the prince of princes in that. Um, other things that he does against the Jewish people, and this is part of what's going on in this other part, when it talks about the horn growing 
and it throws down the starry host. Some people, we read that, and it's like, okay, he's talking about taking out angels. Well, in other places in Daniel, Daniel 12, 3, a starry host is referring to the Jewish people. So he's killing the Jewish people. And so this is, again, what we see. Like I said, he killed 40,000 Jews in a two-day period. He sold the position of the high priest. He puts icons of Zeus all over the temple. He puts a stop to daily sacrifices, to the temple sacrifices. And this is, again, what it says. The temple will be destroyed. Um, people will feel secure. Uh, let me find the passage here. Uh, place of his sanctuary will be brought low because of a rebellion, the host of saints, and daily sacrifices were given over to it. So the daily sacrifices stop. And there's even a passage that talks about it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So after the sanctuary is trampled, after the host has destroyed it, and there's desolation to the temple. It's going to take 2,300 days and nights before they can have these sacrifices again there. But again, it, like Alexander the Great, he dies suddenly. We're not really sure what he dies of. When we look at Alexander the Great, he probably had malaria from what we can understand. We don't really know as much when we're looking at um, Antiochus of how he died or why he died, but we know it was of sickness. It wasn't an assassination attempt or anything like that. And that's, again, exactly what Scripture says. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So all of these things are pointing to, this is exactly what Scripture predicted. This is exactly what we would expect to happen if Daniel's correct, if he's prophesying correctly what's going to happen in all of this. So then comes the next question, of course. Is this all just made up after the fact? So we could have this skepticism and just look at it and say, well, maybe what really happened is Daniel's writing after all of this stuff has happened, and that's why it came about. Now, Daniel, of course, when we look at Daniel itself, is making the claim that he's writing it during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, because that's when he's living. So he's writing it 6th century BC. But what a lot of scholars are going to try to argue is that he's writing around 165 AD. So he's writing a lot later. He's writing after all of these events have happened. And that's the only way that he can be so accurate about these events. So we're going to take a minute to kind of examine. We're going to take really the next 40 minutes or so to kind of examine what are the reasons why we would date Daniel to be earlier than that, why it would make sense that it's actually from the 6th century BC. And the way that we're going to look at that is just looking at, at the objections that people make to that early date. So the different arguments is just saying, first of all, prophecy is impossible. It just can't happen. Another argument is just saying that Daniel has a lot of history within it that's just inaccurate. So if it's inaccurate, even in the history that it records that isn't prophecy, why would you trust it with the stuff that it records that is prophecy? Um, linguistic arguments. So you're looking at the language of it, and you're saying, well, these words are used, and these words don't fit that time period, and so therefore we should date it in this time period instead of the 6th century. It should be in the 1st century. So second, or the 2nd century, 165 AD is generally a lot of the date that 
some scholars will try to throw out there as the reasons for it. Or they're going to say, well, there's multiple authors. So the parts where it's not prophecy, that's from the 6th century. But then they've added in these other parts from other authors that is 2nd century. And that's how we get these predictions going on. And then the theology is just too advanced. There's too much going on. Theology is developing. And we don't see that sort of development by that time. And then maybe it's just that it's in the wrong section. And I'll explain that one in a bit. So the first argument, the prophecy is impossible. This one is one that we can, first of all, refer to what Matt talked about last week and what we talked in the previous weeks. If God exists, then it's 100% possible that God could speak through, through prophecy. There's no reason that's ruled out. If God exists, that's a possibility. And also, because we know miracles are possible, looking at everything that Matt talked about last week, we know that that's a possibility. So in a lot of ways, this is using an a priori assumption. It's using circular reasoning. It's saying, well, prophecies don't exist because we've never seen one happen. And we know we've never seen one happen because prophecies don't exist. It's circular reasoning. And so you have to give some evidence or you have to promote something else to go against a specific prophecy. And this is why I thought it was better for us to not, instead of just looking generally at do prophecies actually happen, but let's look at one specifically and look at the evidence for it. Is there good evidence just looking at this specific prophecy to believe that this actually was written before and that what it talked about was fulfilled? So, and this really ends up just being blind faith in a lot of ways. You're just saying, well, I'm going to assume this from the get-go. So it's calling Daniel a flat-out lie. So <clears throat> with this, a good example of this, Barta Ehrman has a little blog that he talks about prophecy. And one of the things he says in this, over the years, I've thought a lot about this question and have tried to explain on several occasions why a miracle can never be shown on historical grounds to have happened, even if it did. So what sort of sense does that make? It'd be like, if I was trying to prove to someone that we've landed on the moon, and they're saying, well, you can't use historical or scientific or any other data to prove that we landed on the moon, even if we did land on the moon. You're assuming already that there's no way we can prove something. You have to look at the evidence. You can't just assume your conclusion right away. You have to examine the evidence. And that's exactly what they're doing in doing this. Okay. So again, it's this sort of circular reasoning that I think this kind of cartoon kind of outlines in a good way. Okay, so that's the first argument. It is, and this is one of the arguments that is put out by one of the early philosophers of paganism, and his name's Porfrat, I can never say it, Porfrey. And he proposed the idea in the third century. So in the third century, we've had and 3rd century BC still, so about 300 years afterwards, he's proposing the idea that um, for, for we have hundreds of years that it's not contended that Daniel was written in the 6th century. And now in the 3rd century, he comes along and proposes this idea. And then he, once he dies, that idea is not promoted again until about the 1700s. 
So there's a long period, and that's not necessarily evidence that that's what happened. But it is interesting to think that this wasn't one that was even considered for a very long time. So about 1,500 years after him, the ideas recirculated once again. And Daniel is believed to have been from the 6th century, all of those gaps in between. So the other argument is saying it's, it's bad history. It's fake news, right? So when we look at Daniel, there's all these examples that we have that Daniel's not recording good information. And if he's not recording good information that's in the stuff that isn't prophecies, how can we trust it with the stuff that is prophecies? Which I think is a legitimate argument. So we have to get into the details because the truth is into the details. So one of the examples that is thrown out is Belshazzar. And they're trying to argue that Belshazzar, who's the last king of the Persian Empire, never existed. When we look at some of the um, earliest sources that we have, it actually doesn't mention Belshazzar as a king. He's supposed to be the last king, according to Daniel. But when we examine all of the different uh, sources we have outside of Daniel, he's not listed as a king. He's not on the list, and he's definitely not the last one on the list. The last one on the list is Nabonidus is listed as the last king of Babylon. But what we also found, so this is the Nabonidus cylinder, which was discovered in 1853. And on that cylinder, it shows that Nabonidus has a son, and his son is Belshazzar. Belshazzar now is, that means that Belshazzar is an heir, but maybe he doesn't come to complete kingship. But it also records in that scroll that he becomes co-regent, so he's second in command. Nabonidus is worried about some of the stuff going on in another part of his kingdom, and he needs to go and take care of that and go to war. So he goes away. His son basically becomes the formal king in a sense, even though he's not the actual king, he's the acting king. But he's not listed because he's not the actual king. So Nabonidus is off doing war. So he's co-regent with Nabonidus in that. And Daniel mentions this when Belshazzar is in the temple or is in, in his palace, and he's celebrating and he's using even some of the temple glasses from the Jew Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And he's celebrating with those, and that's when we see God comes and he writes on the wall with his hand. His hand appears on the wall and writes on the wall that your time is coming. You've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. And now you're going to get taken out. And it says within that, that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen in a way that is going to be sudden, and it's going to be, in many ways, very peaceful and unexpected. And so what's interesting is even when this prophecy, even when Daniel shows up to interpret this writing on the wall, what does Belshazzar promise him? He promises, if someone can interpret what this means, I will make you third in the kingdom. Why doesn't he make him first or make him second? Usually when some sort of promise like this happens, the king says, I'll make you second in the kingdom, even if you want to be second in the kingdom. We see that with the Pharaoh when Joseph interprets the dream. He says, I'll make you second in the kingdom. Belshazzar says, I'll make you third because Belshazzar is second. 
He can't make him second. He's already second. So even that ends up lining up with what we're seeing within Scripture. So within that, another thing that we have is Darius the Mede. This is another one that people are arguing Darius the Mede did not exist. So according to Daniel, his kingship is given in verses 531 and 911. It's given. It's not taken. It's not, not a, he's not an heir, but it's given. And his authority is limited. So he doesn't have authority over all of it. And he is a co-regent, again. Same sort of thing is going on. His, what's interesting, though, is his name itself, Darius, means king. So Darius is actually a title, not as much a name. So what we have then is within history is we have these lists of other guys that are co-regents around that time of the empires and the parts of the empire that Darius the Mede was supposed to be in charge of that are called kings. And these are the different guys that could fit that description. Now there's arguments within historians of which one of these guys is actually Darius the Mede. Majority of people think it's Gubero. So there's Gubero, Ugbaro, Cambyses, and Cyrus. All of these guys fit the description in different ways. Majority of scholars think it's Gubero. Okay? And I think this is a picture of Gubaro. I'm not quite sure. I tried to figure it out. So that can be an explanation of it. We don't have to necessarily give evidence 100%, but we can say, hey, this would show that it can still line up. This can still add up with what we're saying. Um, and then the other thing is the good history that we have recorded in Daniel. There's all sorts of things that we have in Daniel. Yeah? Sorry, just going back. Aren't there later Persian kings around the time the Greco Persian Wars were named? Like Darius? Well? Um, there, I'd have to look at that, to be honest. I think. Well, that's who it's talking about. Darius the Mede is. In, when you're, and are you talking in about you're seeing that in scripture or you're seeing that through other, in history? So some of those guys might be considered that. So it might be even like it'll be Darius Gaboro, Darius Ugboro. And so it's giving specific, so it's the title. <clears throat> so then we have other things that are recording good history in Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar, some of the interesting things that we see about him. When Nebuchadnezzar is talked about, he's a bragger. He's a boaster. He's a Donald Trump of his day. He's talking about, he literally talks about, he built this great wall. Like, he's, he is the Trump of the time. And so this is an interesting thing, because then when we look at history, we have this East Indian description. This is that. And there's six columns on this East Indian description of Nebuchadnezzar just bragging about how awesome he is. He's going off. And so even the personalities that Daniel's recording line up with what we know in history. And what's interesting is some of the stuff that he's recording was lost to history for a long period of time. So the idea, for instance, that Nebuchadnezzar was full of himself, when we know history outside of Daniel, between when Daniel's supposed to have written 
and later, even, uh, even a little bit past what liberal scholars want to say of him writing in 165, this sort of thing of him being full of himself, historians didn't know about that during that time period. So one scholar, one of these scholars who's trying to throw out the idea that Daniel's writing in 165 AD, he actually says, we'll never know how the author Daniel knew, and he goes off to explain some of the things about Nebuchadnezzar, saying, we don't understand how he knew this because nobody knew this around the time that Daniel's writing, if he's writing in the second century. Nobody knew it. How did he know it? How did he know it? Because he was there. He's writing in the sixth century. And so this explains so much that now you're trying to say that he doesn't write good history, but he's writing better history than anybody's writing in that time period, if you're going to say that he's in writing in that time period. So it would make sense that he's writing instead during that time period. <clears throat> um, another thing I talked about earlier, the capture of ba Babylon. This is another thing that was unknown to historians that are writing during the supposed time Daniel's writing. So the capture of Babylon, this is an a depiction of what Babylon looked like during that time period. And does anybody know how the Persians took Babylon? Okay, the way they took Babylon, do you know? Well, I'm guessing just from that image that they got someone to open the gates for them. So these are, this is a river. So it's not a gate. What they actually did was they dammed up the river further up and they came through they lowered the wa waters enough that they were able to come through into the rivers. And they took it silently in the night because of that. They didn't have to siege the city like everybody else would, where it would take probably years to take over Babylon. They sneak in. And so that's another thing that Daniel records that isn't known before his, in that time that supposedly he's writing in the second century. So it's more information that is showing, once again, Daniel's recording history very, very well, unlike some historians want to argue when they're trying to say he wrote later. Daniel in the lion's den. This is actually has some confirmation of things going on. So we talked about already Babylon having pictures of lions all throughout the city. They liked lions. They were known to take captive lions and have them in the city for various uses. And so this is a common thing. So the idea of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den fits perfectly with what we understand of Babylon at the time. We also know that with Daniel, when he's thrown into the lion's den, he comes out and then the king punishes the people that had tricked the king into sending Daniel into the lion's den. He sends the people that made that decree, but he also sends the family. Now in most cultures, when we see that sort of thing, we look at that and say, why would you punish the family? They had nothing to do with that. Most cultures wouldn't punish the family for that. But we know with history that the Babylonians were known to punish not just the person responsible, but their family as well. So this, again, is something that lines up with scripture. He's recording history in a way that nobody else is doing. <clears throat> so the next question, this is probably one of the most, bigger objections that people bring up, but I would argue is probably one of the worst objections that people bring up. It's one of the more complicated ones, but it, isn't, it, it doesn't have really any credit to it whatsoever. So when we look at the language in Daniel, 
chapter 1 to 2, verse 4, is all Hebrew. And then from 2, 4 to 7 is Aramaic, and from 8 to 12 is Hebrew, and then there's Greek and Persian that's just kind of spattered throughout it. So if Daniel's writing it, we would expect Hebrew. So we seem to have questions now with Aramaic. That seems like that maybe suggests a different date, and especially Greek. Greek especially would seem to imply a later date because Greece doesn't come to conquer until well after. So here are the reasons for that. So Alexander the Great, he doesn't come around until 332 BC. So for Greek language to be brought in, it seems odd that it's brought in that early. If he's writing near in the sixth century and they're not conquered till the fourth century, that seems odd to happen. But here's the thing with that. So first, we're going to look at the Persian words. Any guesses how many Persian words there are? In total. 15 in the entire book of Daniel. So there's not a lot. So that's one of the things that's already becomes interesting. It's not really that significant. Is there's, there's not many. So the Persian words all relate to government. So already, let me just back up really quick. When we look at that there's Aramaic, that's really the common language of the day. So there's nothing really significant there. That's what the Babylonians spoke. That's what most of the people in the region spoke. It's not really odd for Daniel to write in Aramaic. It's obviously not odd for him to write in Hebrew because he's Jewish. But Persian becomes a problem. So the 15 words in the entire book, what's interesting is all of those 15 words are related to government. So we also know Daniel's writing, and he starts during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, but he continues on into the reign of Cyrus, and Cyrus is one of the Persian rulers who's obviously speaking Persian, and he's in the government of that Persian ruler. So for him to use terminology that's Persian terminology for what is his profession makes perfect sense. <clears throat> so Daniel's working in the Persian government, and the other thing is when we're looking at these terms, six of those 15 terms, we don't find them even mentioned in any other source after 330 BC. So all of those occur before 330 BC, and we never see them mentioned again after that. And all 15 are old Persian. So when we talk about the English language now, so I see you perk up, because him and I were talking just the other day about Old English, Middle English, New English. Those have specific time periods that we look at, that we can understand where those are dated based upon the phrases that they're using. And when we're looking at the Persian language that Daniel is using in Daniel, they all are Old Persian. And so that Old Persian dates more towards the sixth century. If he was writing in 165, like the scholars, some scholars are trying to argue, he should be writing in Middle Persian. And so the dating doesn't line up. Those Persian words actually do more to support our case than to go against it. <clears throat> the Greek words. This is the next objection. So any idea how many Greek words? Any other? 20, 10? So there's a grand total of three. Three Greek words. 
and you're going to use this to say that it wasn't written in the 6th century. Okay? Yeah. People borrow words from other languages, and this is the problem. So all of these names are names of instruments. So this isn't exactly something that you would probably use to date something. So the other thing, when we're talking about instruments, instruments usually don't change their name culture to culture. What do we call a djembe in English? A djembe. What do they call it everywhere else? A djembe. We don't usually change the name of instruments going from language to language. So it's not odd that this is included in that. That's not a djembe. That's actually one of the instruments mentioned that I'll get to in a second. They are also all transliterations. So not only is he using instruments, which generally we end up translating and saying the same way, he is writing it in the way you would pronounce it in Aramaic or in Hebrew. He's not writing out the Greek lettering of it. He's writing it out how it would sound to an Aramaic person or to a Hebrew person. Um, so here are the examples um, of these, and I think this first one, if I remember right, that's a symphonia, which is pictured, okay? I couldn't find a picture of the other ones. Um, so this word is used by Pythagoras in 530 BC. So that would make it ancient Persian in its language. And it's much closer to the date we're proposing of the 6th century than the 2nd century, which other scholars are trying to propose. Um, the, the next term is kytheros. And kytheros we find in Homer's work. And I don't know if it's the Iliad. It's probably the Odyssey, I would guess, um, in the 8th century. So this actually puts it even earlier than we're dating it. And the only reference that we have. And then finally, the last word is santerian. And that word has no other uses that we've ever seen. So to say that this is, should be used to argue that the Daniel was written in the second century, the evidence actually points much more towards the sixth century, or it doesn't give us any information to work with. Because this last term, we don't have any other places that it's ever used. So the lack of Greek actually supports, as well, an early date. Because if he's writing in the second century, Greece is already in charge. You would expect him to use a lot more Greek in his writing. So only three words. What happens a lot of times is people get into these arguments, get up to whatever they're going to use to argue against Daniel's early dating, and they just hear this argument, and they haven't examined it. They don't know that there's only three Greek words that are actually used, and that those three Greek words are instruments, and two of them actually date more towards what we're talking about. Because early on, when this idea was thrown out, we didn't really know as much, but as we got more information, eventually we started to find these other references. That's where we found Pythagoras noting of the symphonia. Okay? So, <clears throat> um, the Aramaic. So, the Aramaic, 
like I said earlier, is the common tongue in Daniel's day is Aramaic. So it's not unusual, again, for him to be mentioning that there. Critics say it's second century Aramaic. So now they're not disagreeing that Aramaic itself is a problem. They're trying to say, well, it's late Aramaic, or it's, it's the newer Aramaic. And so in that sense, it doesn't fit the time. Well, it's imperial courtly Aramaic. So again, it's referencing the role that Daniel has in the kingdom. This would be important for him to kind of know. So one of the examples that it gives is Chaldean. So imperial courtly Chaldean is a term that is used as defining as someone as a wise man. Okay? And what critics are trying to say is the term wasn't used to reference as wise men during that time, and it was only used to say wise men until the second century. And so that makes it older, or it makes it newer, and so Daniel should be dated different. Well, as we discovered more, looked at more manuscripts, and looked at it, they're claiming that it was, didn't mean astronomer till the second century. Well. Herodotus, who's considered the father of history, he's pretty much the earliest historian ever, he actually uses it in the fifth century. So again, that's closer to our date than their date. And then we have Diodorus Siculus. Now he's not writing in the seventh century, but he references to it saying that he must have had access to something written in the seventh century that does use the term in that way which makes the date then even earlier than what we're saying. So again, all of these ideas, either they've been outdated, because maybe at first we didn't realize that we had some of those terms, these Aramaic terms that were used earlier on, and we've now discovered, or people haven't done enough research. They've done their little Google search, they've looked on Wikipedia. If you go on Wikipedia right now, you're gonna say, see that it says the Bible claims that it was written, Daniel was written in the sixth century, but critics and scholars agree that it was written in the second century. But they don't, nobody looks at the actual evidence for these things, because when you examine the evidence, this is what we come up with. Um, so the last couple of arguments, so we're gonna probably end a little bit earlier, probably just open it up for questions. The last couple of arguments end up saying that, well, maybe there's multiple authors. Maybe what's actually being said is multiple people talking into it. So most of it, yeah, I agree, most of it was sixth century, but when we look at the parts that are prophetic, maybe somebody else stepped in in those moments. Well, this is arbitrary. This is a blind argument. We don't have any evidence, we don't have any reason to think that there's multiple authors talking in this. There's nothing in the language that would indicate that there's multiple authors. We don't have any evidence of manuscripts missing, any sections that are those prophetic sections or anything like that. Argument needs evidence. Also, from all the data that we have, even if we could think that there's multiple authors, all the data we have would still show that those authors are writing in the sixth century. So let's say Daniel didn't write all of it. There's still somebody writing prophecy in the sixth century that's proving that the Bible's correct and fulfilled prophecy. So it doesn't help you even if there are multiple authors. Um, the other argument that people make is theology's just too advanced. They're saying there's too much going on, there's too much development. 
Well, the problem with this is who says that theology somehow develops? Some of the deepest theology of the Christian religion and the Jewish religion comes from Genesis, one of the earliest books. I would say probably the deepest theology comes from the book of Job because it's talking about the problem of evil, which is still probably one of the most contested problems within theology. Job is considered to be the first book written. It's not the first book in cons con uh, as far as events happening, but as far as books that are written, we believe that Job was probably the first book that was ever written. Yet, it's considered by many scholars to be the most in-depth theological book of the entire Bible. So there's no reason to think that somehow it has to develop, that theology has to develop and grow. In some ways, when I was listening to Mike Winger talk about this, he gives the point that when we started to do math and count, it wasn't like there was somebody in a cave who some, they counted to one, then the next person could count to two, then the next person could count to three because it's developing. We just understood it and suddenly we could count a long way. There wasn't this development of numbers in that sense. Um, the themes of Daniel also come straight from Old Testament books. So the idea that it talks about as well, there's a lot of prophecies about the Messiah, which we didn't really get into here. We'll probably talk about some of them next week. A lot of those themes, which are those deeper themes that they're talking about, come from Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is very, very early. It's talking about there being a seed, that, there's, that Satan is going to rule over, and that there's going to be a virgin, and that virgin is then going to have a son, and that son is going to conquer the snake. All of that's chapter 2. It's very early. So the whole idea that it has to develop goes against everything we know about the Bible, everything we know about the dating of the Bible. This is really the only book when it comes to dating that many scholars are going to have contention with. When we look at Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, I probably could have taken a passage from Ezekiel that actually prophesied over the conquering of when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Tyre. I could have looked at that passage as a prophecy that was fulfilled. That's one that most scholars don't disagree with at all. They would just say, well, it wasn't actually fulfilled. If you actually read the text, it's pretty darn clear that it was fulfilled. It's pretty easy to see it. But they don't argue about the dating of it. They do argue about it with Daniel, but they don't have really much ground to stand on for it. Um, they say that it has too much information about the Messiah. Again, a lot of the prophecies, I would say most of the prophecies we have about the Messiah really come out of the Psalms or they come out of Genesis. So the idea that this has too much prophecies about the Messiah doesn't really make sense because we're getting more of those prophecies from other books than we're getting from Daniel. About the resurrection and about judgment, those are also things that we get plenty of those prophecies in other books that you don't contend the dates. So why would you say that this is a problem? And, you're, and these books, you're not arguing about the dates of when it was written. So if it's not a problem for those, that shouldn't be a problem for this. Um, another argument people say is that Daniel is in the wrong section. If you look at a Jewish Bible today, it breaks it up into the writings, the histories, the prophecies, and the Torah. And the Torah is just the first five books of the Old Testament. So when you look at a current Jewish Bible and the breakup of that, Daniel's included in the writings. So it's it's been considered, well, actually, I don't know if it's even necessarily a Jewish Bible, but some, some groups will put it into the writings instead of prophecy. 
And along that line, people are also going to say, well, Daniel wasn't in the position of a prophet. So we see that Samuel was in a position of the prophet, so he could have those prophecies. Other people were in the position of a prophet, so they could have prophecies. But Daniel, he wasn't actually a prophet, so he wasn't actually prophesying. Problem with these ideas is Daniel, him not being included, that book not being included into the prophecies didn't really happen until the fourth century AD. So all up until that time, when you're looking at the lists of the books of the prophecies, Daniel's in it. It's not until way later, and I would argue because people are trying to say that it's not a prophetic book, because they're not wanting this to be true, that they're starting to say it's not part of the prophecies. Um, that he wasn't in the position of the prophet. Honestly, that just shows that you have no biblical knowledge, because there's so many prophets all throughout Scripture that don't, aren't in the role of a prophet, aren't in the role of the prophet that prophesy. David does it. He's not in the role of the prophet. Saul does it. Saul's not even a good guy in many ways, according to the Bible, but he prophesies, it talks about, when he's anointed king. So just because someone isn't in the position of a prophet does not rule them out by any means of being a prophet. Um, and then we see all throughout the New Testament, Daniel's called a prophet. When he's referenced, a lot of the times he's called a prophet. When we look at the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, He's called a prophet there. Josephus, a historian, a Jewish historian, writing for the Romans when he talks about Daniel, calls him a prophet. Origen, one of the early church fathers, calls him a prophet. There's really nobody that's contending this, that he's a prophet. Maybe he's not the prophet. He's not in position of a prophet, but that doesn't matter. So that's, uh, that's it. That's all I got for you guys. Um, but any questions? I know there's a lot there. Um, I think that maybe is some of the argument, but really the, the problem with that is we, if we go back to, let me bring this all up again. When you look with, at the spots that it would be odd to use certain language, really the only ones that are in, in really much contention is um, Persian and Greek being used. Aramaic which Aramaic was the common language at the time Daniel's writing, and Hebrew. So is it going like, he's writing Aramaic, and then he's writing Hebrew, and then he's writing Aramaic again? Um, let me bring it up again. So chapters one, chapter 1 and all the way to 2, 4 is in Hebrew. And then it goes into Aramaic for the middle section from 2, 4 to 7. And then it's Hebrew again from 8 to 12. So is he writing each of those sections in different, at different times? Like slightly different? Not like hugely different, but like maybe today he writes that first section and then next week he writes the second section? Is that why it seems like different? Um, I don't know. I'd have to research to tell you for sure why he's writing it in that different languages. But... Aramaic and Hebrew have a lot of similarities. Um, Persian is a little bit further off. Greek is definitely getting into a very, very different look. Um, but the only thing that really would cause a problem is if he, if he suddenly used a lot of Greek, he's doing a whole bunch of stuff in Greek, 
then that would maybe seem to imply that he's writing during a later period. But there's only those three words that he uses in Greek. And with Persian, it's the same sort of thing. There's 15 words, but it's spattered in it, right in the middle of the Aramaic and right in the middle of the Hebrew. And so he's clearly using this just to reference a term that maybe he feels like is going to be clear using the term that everybody calls it there um, or something along that line. He's not really using it to, to make something uh, all a whole passage understood in a language. And that's only the time that it will really be a problem. Him writing in Aramaic in that middle section isn't really a problem because it's the common language of the time. So even again, if someone else, let's say he only wrote the two Hebrew sections on the outside, well, that still means that somebody's writing during the sixth century in Aramaic and predicting these things. And they're coming true. And that still ends up proving that the scripture's true. You could argue that, but the text itself doesn't really lend to that. Um, the only like right. Yeah. Yeah, no, so I'm even looking at it. So two, chapter 2, right in the middle of it, or right in the beginning of it, it explains that Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and then someone comes to start explaining it, or the astrologers, or the Chaldeans, that's probably where it's actually coming in. The Chaldeans answer the king, and it says, in Aramaic. So in some ways, what he's doing is saying, all right, I'm telling you a story. This is the part where people are actually talking in Aramaic. So I'm writing in Aramaic. Right. Um, and that continues on. He just kind of continues. That's where he transitions from the Hebrew into the Aramaic. And that continues on until he gets to chapter 7. And that's where we see the prophecy that we talked about of the three beasts, or the four beasts, but we didn't talk about the fourth beast. So now he goes back into the Hebrew because now he's, that's who his audience is. He's wanting the Hebrews to know and understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's a number of things. One, the language doesn't imply that. Um, the terms that he's using are terms that are used more during the 6th century. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to say that someone else is writing in there. There's no indication in the text. You know, one of the things that we can do when we're looking through different books is if someone has uh, altered a text and added something in, a lot of times you're able to read the text finely enough that you can kind of just tell there's just been a change in the voice here. The writing style is different. Um, 
and you know, you think of that, you think of your two favorite authors, and if one of them added something into your a book that you are very familiar with and you know, you'd probably be like, this sounds more like this guy, or at least this doesn't sound like the way that this author usually writes. And there's nothing within the text to indicate that, for one thing. Um, and then, you know, all of that ends up being the reasons why people are trying to say that it's not sixth century don't add up for one. All the arguments that they're trying to make to say that it's second century, there's not really evidence to back it up. And then there's also the fact that he is mentioning history that at the time, the Greeks, when they take over, they make this great library that they're wanting, okay, we want, we want a copy, then this is where we get the Septuagint. We want a copy of the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. We want a, your history in our language. And so they're getting all of the documents they can from every place to try to get it. And when they do that and they compile it all together, there's information contained in the history that we see of what Daniel wrote down that in the, all the other sources from that time period, nobody knew. It's information that nobody knew. And for centuries after that, Daniel is the one person saying, for instance, that Babylon was conquered like that and was conquered easily and without much of a fight. Nobody knew that. And we didn't, for the longest time, historians were saying that just can't be right. There must be a different explanation. It was probably rated just like everybody else and took years and years to take out. Doesn't make sense. And then we get other data years after that that says, yeah, they were right about that. Or things contending, well, this guy actually wasn't a king. He didn't actually exist. Well, clearly Daniel's saying that he was a king in the sense that he's co-regent. He wasn't a full king. And so it would make sense that he maybe isn't listed in the, in the list of kings that we see. And then we see other data that says, oh yeah, Daniel's right. He was co-regent. And so things that even the people, if he was writing in the second century, just gathering all the data he could of the time period and saying, I'm going to write this and I'm going to make it look like prophecy, he's going to get everything that he can together and say, this is, this is what happened. But he's got information that nobody at that time knew. So how is he getting that information? The, only, the best explanation is that he's actually there during the time. He's not making it up. He was there when it happened. Have you heard of any arguments for like, other nations and beasts? Was that heard like Britain is the lion and yeah. Russia Yeah, so there is some different arguments um, out there. So this is one, one thing that I think people do put in contention a little bit. Um, but ultimately, like, I've looked at a lot of those, and this is one that like, when I've come across, I'm like, this is the only one that makes sense of like, everything extremely clearly, you know, especially when you're looking at um, the prophecy of the goat and the ram. So much of that, like, to the details of their personality types, when it's talking about like, he's, he's going to come to power in this like, undermining way, like, none of the other explanations do that well. Um, and some of them, you know, get more simple things of like conquering from the West. Well, you know, if you're going to say, I think one of them will say the bear is Russia. Well, the bear's not coming from the right direction then. Um, or I guess, no, the bear would be coming from the right direction there. 
But some of the simple things in the prophecy just don't line up with those other ideas of it. Um, so yeah, there is, there is other views out there of this, but I think this is the one that, that lines up best with all of it, especially because it seems to be implying when it talks about like these kings, it seems to be implying that there's kind of a succession one after another. It's not these vast kingdoms, because I've seen ones that'll kind of say like, you know, even the Jehovah Witnesses will go as far as saying like, currently, we're dealing with the goat. Like, what? How are you? Like, you've skipped all of these other ones. And now it's like, well, if you're going to do it that far, then now it seems really easy to kind of just pick and choose what fits and what doesn't, you know, just to support your worldview in it. Where this is just, you know, these are the next kings that are coming after Daniel, and they fit like a glove. Why would we go anywhere else? Any other questions? All right. Thanks for coming, guys. I think we're finishing a little early. I have a question. Is yeah. there, I don't know if it's in the later chapter of Daniel, or doesn't it talk about uh, sort of a statue where the feet are clay, and mm -hmm. then it's bronze and iron? Is yeah. That yeah. Two, right? What? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's two. That's where it gets into the Aramaic. And so that one, um, I don't know if I could necessarily lay out all of the different kingdoms, but it starts with Nebuchadnezzar, and then it goes into the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Alexander the Great. And then it goes into, it actually, I think, splits up um, the four as well. And then it talks about Antiochus, and then Rome. And Rome is the last one. And then Rome is taken out by the rock. And so that's the entrance of the kingdom. And so one of the things sometimes when we read scripture and we hear the word kingdom of heaven, we get this idea that the kingdom of heaven is something that we're waiting for. We're waiting for the resurrection. We're waiting for the time that we're all going to go up into heaven. When we read the New Testament, that's not the language it's using. And we read the Old Testament, that doesn't seem to be the language it's using of this kind of resurrection of going up into heaven. It seems to be a lot more of the kingdom's here. It's arrived. And that's not in the sense that we're completely in charge. It's, it's growing. And <clears throat> there is still going to be a time that Christ comes back and binds Satan and all of that as well. Um, but that's something that's very clearly like that, that has arrived, that has come already. And it's, um, it makes sense, once again, that Rome's the end of that because that's where Christ comes during all of that. So I need to do some more research, and I think he may do a talk on that one specifically. Again, like if you guys are interested in learning more of these prophecies, this is a guy that I'm definitely going to recommend you checking out, because he even says that um, in the next chapter, in chapter 9, he argues is actually more of the most in-depth prophecy and the best prophecy of all the Old Testament. I liked this one just because I thought with the visuals, it's easier to kind of wrap your mind around, and hopefully that's something that you can kind of bring up in conversation is maybe keeping in mind one of those to talk with people when they're saying, well, how can you trust the Bible? And bringing this up to say, well, Daniel's written in the sixth century. This is the stuff that it says, and this is how it clearly came to be fulfilled. It's a little harder to remember all of the details that happen in the next chapter, 
um, with that. But if you look up Mike Winger, he's going to talk uh, more in depth about some of those. I'm not sure if he does Daniel 2 or not, um, but he does another chapter in Daniel he thinks is more important, and then the destruction of Tyre as well. So, alrighty, thanks guys.